Isaiah. Pray together. Father, we thank you for the joy of looking into your word together. Thank you for the joy of uh, a meeting as a church, fellowshipping, Lord, in light of pastor's message this morning. May we never, ever do anything me at the expense of we. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the clarity of the wisdom of Solomon in that, and I pray that we would uh, find our legacy together as a faith community, and uh, we would all take our place uh, through our gifting. Lord, we thank you for that. Lord, we continue to think of uh, those who are uh, just walking through the valley in the shadow of death this week. Lord, that's a difficult thing. We uh, pray for uh, families who are wrestling with that, and we pray for uh, as many of them will be traveling. We pray that you would encourage them in their travels, and uh, for the Sites and the Williams and others, Lord, we just pray for grace in, in, in their heart and mind, and even tonight, if they're here under the sound of my voice, I pray that they would know great encouragement as we think of uh, the hope uh, that the church has, a blessed hope. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Take your Bibles and turn to uh, Isaiah chapter 2. We're going to do a quick little review. So we are essentially trying to understand what Isaiah's contribution is to our understanding of the end times. Uh, the big word is our es the eschatology. If you're interested in that word, uh, that's the word we would... Uh, know and understand. Uh, it's a, eschatology in, in its proper form is simply a study of the end times. So we're trying to understand what does Isaiah as a prophet contribute to our understanding. In relationship to that, we, we are really getting a, a, a peek into, from God's perspective, what is driving his plan for the whole universe. And what we want to understand fundamentally is that before a lion laying down with a lamb, uh, before the regathering of the nation of Israel into her homeland, before Jesus himself wiping away every tear, before all of that, there is a fundamental reality that God is pursuing and gathering up this whole universe uh, to deal with. And that is found at the end of chapter 2, and we read it. And this is the very fundamental problem. Uh, and that is, is that we regard man whose breath of life is in his nostrils, for why should he be esteemed? This was fundamentally the issue of the nation of Israel, and certainly is fundamentally the problem that exists in the universe. It's a problem of the question of worship. And, uh, and so this is essentially what the God of heaven fundamentally is, is, according to the book of Isaiah, is going to deal with or must deal with or will deal with. And remember last week we talked about the idea of hope. Uh, Hope or, or our understanding of the end times is not fundamentally apocalyptic, but it's fundamentally a time of great hope. 
It's a time of the realization of things that are very familiar to us, but are oftentimes absent in the human experience. Joy, peace, an absence of violence and suffering, all those things that we long for, the end times is the realization of that. And we recognize that God methodologically has chosen judgment to be the method by which he brings about those amazing conditions that we all hope and long for. And, and tonight we're going to really understand why is judgment the necessary method. And uh, judgment is the necessary method fundamentally because any agreement God makes with man will implode under the weight of man's sinful nature. You know, there are a couple of Old Testament texts that I think inform Isaiah as he gathers together the material he uses for his prophetic utterances. Uh, one of them we sort of, we observed last week in Genesis chapter 12, where Abraham is promised that in him all the nations of the world will be blessed. Remember that? That wonderful promise and and we noticed two simple points last week. Remember that? That hope was universal. That certainly there's a primacy of the nation of Israel in our thinking on end times. But uh, it, it is a universal hope for all nations. And, uh, and, and so we as Gentiles are certainly included uh, in that hope. But, hope. but Genesis chapter 12, uh, a second Old Testament text that I think is very important as Isaiah develops his his prophetic utterances, or as God uses, is, is Exodus chapter 19. And I want you to hold your, well, we're in Isaiah 2, let's go ahead and flip over to Exodus chapter 19, and we'll sort of get the backdrop against um, really uh, much of what Isaiah is having to deal with. So Exodus chapter 19. We'll just read, now you can really read, this is sort of the, uh, the, the 1770, well, yeah, 1770, well, that was the Declaration of Independence. When was the Constitution written? And the formation of our government officially, whenever that was historically. What's that? Anyway, whatever. The point I'm simply trying to make is, this is in parallel to what's happening in the nation of Israel. This is the formulation of their governance, of their, uh, their, their civil uh, life, and they are making a covenant with the God of heaven. This is their constitution. Uh, this is their governing document, the, 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 the commitment on the Mount of Sinai there is a very fearful thing. Uh, but in Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, we read this. Here's the covenantal arrangement. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you will be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. And they go, he goes on to flesh all that out very important time. Um, but the conditions are critical. The conditions in this, this uh, bilateral agreement, uh, God will certainly do his part. 
And he promises that if they will indeed obey his voice, keep his covenant, number one, they would be his own possession, a very special possession among all the peoples. Um, they, would be, they, they, they would be to him a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And he himself would assure this. He himself would assure this. So this passage is a critical passage for prophets in general. Historically, it was the violation of this Mosaic covenant that demanded God's discipline upon his elect nation. What Isaiah makes clear as he develops his vision, remember we use the term of the day of the Lord. Remember we said that's a prophetic formula in the prophets, and Isaiah uses that as well, in that day, on that day, in the day of the Lord. That prophetic formula, uh, as Isaiah develops it in its judgment aspect. Remember we recognize that in the book of Isaiah, the day of the Lord has a, has a horrific judgment aspect. And in that sense, it is apocalyptic. And, and unless we study the whole of it, we will think that that's all that the end times is. But in fact, it's not. It also has an aspect that is blessing uh, uh, that's immeasurable. Uh, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the, man to, the mind of man. These, the days that await. These are the lion laying down with the lamb, the Israel being regathered, all those wonderful, hopeful uh, promises that uh, we look uh, to enjoy uh, worldwide. So this dual aspect, but as, as Isaiah deals with the judgment aspect of the day of the Lord, uh, it is recognition that any agreement God makes with man implodes under the weight of man's sinful nature. Historically, even when God himself is the king, uh, if we read back at, in, in Exodus, God himself is making these arrangements. We're told that God himself dresses for battle uh, to defend the nation of Israel. He's the theocratic ruler. And uh, even when he is the theocratic ruler, uh, when man is left in an unchanged state, when he's left living according to the dictates of his own sin nature, uh, any agreement even God makes with him will implode under the weight of that sinful, sinful reality. So without a unilateral, we would call it, work of God, God just working in his own behalf on the heart of man, without that, no bilateral agreement would ever stand. Why, we ask tonight, well, we're going to see that it is, first of all, because man's sinful nature is just that blatantly stubborn. Your nature, my nature, even the natures of an elect nation are just that blatantly stubborn in sin. Just a note of structure for the book of Isaiah. Chapters 1 through 35 are prophecies from the standpoint of Isaiah's own day. So think of 1 through 35, Isaiah's own day. And then there's a, a, a sort of a, a critical section, and we're going to focus on that tonight. Chapters 36 to 39, this is a historical section. Now this tells the story of King Hezekiah, and we're going to look at that a little bit. And then the final section of the book of Isaiah, chapters 36 to 39, uh, I'm sorry, chapters uh, uh, 40 to 66, the last half of the book, 
are prophecies from a standpoint future to Isaiah. And uh, so we want to kind of keep that threefold structure in mind. The first part of the book, it's Isaiah in his own day. The middle of it is a, is a specific historic occurrence. And the last half of it are really prophesies from a time that's future to Isaiah. That's when sort of Isaiah's prophetic gift really kicks in. And uh, those, that's where we're going to find all those amazing passages about our future is in that second half. We had glimpses of it in the first half, but we really enjoy it in the second half. Uh, so with that in mind, uh, that, that sort of structure, the, and as we develop this idea that man's sinful nature is just blatantly stubborn, uh, we want to see, first of all tonight, that man's stubborn nature, uh, for it, it matters not what man has seen God do to his enemies. So thinking back to Exodus 19, uh, regardless of what man saw, not only in history, but what man will see in the future, uh, it matters not to that sin nature what God will do to his enemies. I'm just going to rattle off some passages in Isaiah. We'll, we'll come down to Isaiah 39 here in a bit. But Isaiah 26, 11. Uh, teaches us, uh, Isaiah reports that indeed fire will devour the enemies of the nation of Israel. Isaiah 29, verse 5, the multitude of your enemies will become like fine dust. They'll become like chaff which blows away and it will happen suddenly and, in and instantly. Isaiah 42, 13, uh, here the Lord himself will go forth like a warrior. He will arouse his zeal like a man of war. He will utter a shout. Yes, he will raise a war cry and he will prevail against his enemies. So as the nation of Israel enjoyed this reality historically in her national life, and as God gathers us up in the end times reality as he continues to demonstrate his power the reality, this does not even move the stubborn, sinful, willful nature of mankind. It will not. Um, the stubborn, sinful nature of national elect Israel is also seen in the fact that it matters not what man personally experiences God to do on his behalf. Isaiah chapter 1. Here Isaiah cries out, Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks... He says this, sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. Isaiah 5, 4, what more was there to do for my vineyard, speaking of the nation of Israel, that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? Isaiah 39, 2, we know that Hezekiah, as we get into that, Hezekiah was enriched. He had a treasure house filled with silver and gold and spices. And God, the theocratic king, had given this to his administrator. They were enriched. And then Isaiah 41, verses 8 through 9. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its remotest parts and said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not rejected you. This affectionate language of what the God of heaven had done for the nation of Israel could not crack 
or break open the rock-hard, willful sin nature of man. Neither what they saw God do to their enemies, nor what they personally experienced God do for them, changed their sinful bent. In addition, it mattered not the glory of the promise that was before them. You know, parents, we often use this sort of, uh, uh, this sort of tactic, don't we? Uh, we promise uh, some uh, wonderful opportunity with the expectation that somehow behavior will get better, right? That's our hope. You know, we'll go get ice cream if, or we'll go to Cedar Point only when, or these kinds of things. And, and this is sort of, in fact, what God is, is helping the nation of Israel to see. They, uh, uh, the, these amazing uh, realities um, Exodus points out the fact that they will be his own possession among all the nations. Imagine that. Uh, set out apart from all of the Gentile neighbors, the very possession of the God of the universe, the creator of everything that they saw, knew, and enjoyed. They would be his own possession. And if that were not enough, they would be for him a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He, 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 would, he would so arrange matters that their influence would be desired, that they would uh, have an influence which would cause people to long to want to be like them and to desire who they are. And they will be looked at as leaders and influencers in a marvelous way. You know, if that were not enough, uh, uh, sadly, uh, even that promise of glorious national existence could not cut through the stubborn, committed, sinful nature of man. And if that were not enough, God stresses to the nation that he himself, he himself was making the promise. You know, it's one thing if I make a promise to you, or maybe even a president makes a promise to you. But obviously, sewn into the fabric of those promises are the weakness of time, uh, inability, uh, a growing uh, uh, a mortality, and an inability to fulfill. But the reality is God himself is making these promises. He says, all of the earth is mine in Exodus. And Isaiah picks up that theme in Isaiah 19, verse 17. It says, the land of Judah will become a terror to Egypt rather than, than living under the fearful auspices of Egypt. Wow, what a turn of events that will be. And how will this come to pass? Because of the purpose of the Lord of hosts, which he is purposing. Isaiah 40, 17, all the nations are as nothing before him. The, 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 the gathering up the corporate strength of all of humanity as it is expressed in nations, that is nothing before the Lord. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless when it comes to the question of God's ability to fulfill his promises. They are no obstacle whatsoever. Isaiah 44, 26, and then again, Isaiah 46, verses 10 and 11, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure, God says. 
So man's sinful nature is stubborn beyond comprehension. So stubborn that any agreement God would make with us that relies on any part of us would implode under the weight of our sinful nature. It was true of the nation of Israel. It's true in every, we would say, dispensation that God has granted revelation to mankind. Mankind has an innate issue, an innate problem. So what is needed then? What is needed, according to Isaiah's prophecy, is a new kind of man and a new kind of king. As mentioned above, chapters 36 through 39 is a historical section. So we'll turn there. Let's turn to particularly to Isaiah 39. It tells the story of the rise and fall of good king Hezekiah. Good king Hezekiah of Judah. He stands as an illustration of the paradox of the whole nation itself. Chapter 39 tells of Hezekiah, Hezekiah's foolish act. And, and you could read that there as I'm talking. It's, it's a short chapter. Uh, Second Chronicles uh, tells us in chapter 32 that this is a test for Hezekiah to see what is in his heart. What was in the heart of the king is what was in the heart of the people. Instead of regarding God, he regarded man whose breath was in his nostrils. What is noteworthy for our point tonight is that, first of all, this was an act that was displayed by one of the good and godly kings of Judah. We're specifically honing down in verses 7, 8 there, sort of Hezekiah's response to the first mention of Babylonian intrusion and captivity. And all Hezekiah can say to that is, well, the word of the Lord is good. You, what you have spoken is good. For he thought, for there will be peace and truth, at least in my days. <laughs> I have no concern for anybody but myself. Um, so this is one of the good kings of Judah. It was a response that had such a blatant disregard for the future welfare of the people. It was, act, it was an act that not only exacerbated that even at her best, the hearts of the Davidic line of rulers had yet to demonstrate the heart of the true Messianic ruler who was the hope of the nation. This test, Hezekiah failed, as every ruler had. Like Hezekiah, according to Isaiah 41, verse 1, this new kind of king would come. And like Hezekiah, he would be one chosen of God, one in whose God soul delighted. He would be duly anointed as king in the nation of Israel. But unlike Hezekiah in Isaiah 41, he would not raise his voice. He would not break a bruised human reed. He would not extinguish the smoldering wick of human hurt and pain, but in, and sort of disregard it and say something like, well, I'm glad it's not my problem. No, this is a different kind of king. This is a king who's sensitive, 
who, who understands that and who ministers to it. Unlike Hezekiah, he will not dishearten or crush. He will not be disheartened or crushed until the job is done. Isaiah 41 and Isaiah 53, he will suffer as a man of sorrows. He will have no iniquity of his own, but will carry the iniquity of the people. God himself will be pleased not to deliver him, but to crush him for your sake and for mine. Unlike Hezekiah in Isaiah 66, this new king will subdue the nations, making Jerusalem the crown jewel of the earth. He will not allow violence to be heard in her land. He will personally attend to the fact that she will once and for all dwell in security. He, in verse 19 of chapter 6 himself, as God, will be the everlasting light for them. There will be no need for the sun. And the most unbelievable of all, the crown jewel of eschatology, is that he himself will make all the peoples righteous so that he will be glorified. You know, Isaiah profoundly teaches that it is man's stubborn, sinful nature that propels the events of the end time. Never forget that. Our willful disobedience is breathtaking. It requires the coming of a new kind of man, the suffering servant in his first advent and the resurrected Lord of glory in his second. Beloved, know this about the hope of glory. That long before it is the reestablishment of Israel in her land or a lion laying down with the lamb or tears being wiped away from your eyes, it is first and foremost the hope of breaking my sinful, willful, rebellious state. And not only mine, but of all of the nations and of Israel herself. You know what, folks? The church is better suited to possess, to understand this than all the other faith communities in salvation history. She possesses freedom from the power of sin in Christ in a very special way. In this sense, she possesses eternal life. She can become what she already is. She can know in microcosm what we enjoy inside these walls as we progressively grow up into what Jesus Christ wants us to be as he breaks the power of sin in our life and he replaces our affections uh, from being influenced by the men from the east and men whose mere breath is in their nostrils and he replaces it with his affections. We have the possibility of enjoying in, macro, or in microcosm what the world one day will know in macrocosm. All this to deal with the results of the sinful nature of mankind. And may God help us to understand this is the direction of the universe. It's to deal with the sinful, willful, rebellious nature of mankind. And we have the joy to do that right now, today, by God's grace, as we seek to have our affections informed by the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for uh, the book of Isaiah. And Lord, we, we confess that as we get this breathtaking view of uh, the, the, 
nationally, the, the sinful, rebellious nature of Israel. Uh, we, we're right there, and we get it. And it, 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 it means nothing at times to us what you have promised us, what you have done for us, what you've, what you've brought us out of. God, we, we sort of thumb our nose at that, and, and we go along our way. Oh, God, forgive us. Help us as the church to know today what you are, will do in a macrocosm way in all eternity. Help us to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, even to the point of not just loving you, but liking the things that you like, Lord, walking in a way that's pleasing to you. Forgive us for being influenced by man, by men from the East, Lord, those who live uh, not without your values, and help us to live with the Lord Jesus' values. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.